We just got done with a series, if you've been with us over the last few weeks here at Menham Hills, on relationships, right? I hope you got something out of it. Some of the material I, I can tell you because a lot of it was just predicated on lessons Joan and I have learned. Um, they've changed us. I'm glad to see so many of you back this morning, most of you sitting with the same person that you were in the prior weeks. But beginning today and leading up to Easter Sunday, we're going to go in a different direction. In our last series, this one on relationships, we did, and there's nothing wrong with this, but it's a good thing to do, actually. We did what Christians and churches have done for centuries with the teachings of Jesus. We use them for inspiration and, and for application and some, some direction and instruction, right, for how we should live, specifically, right, about relationships, You've, you've probably heard somebody in your life say something like, well, I wonder what the Bible has to say about this. And that's what we did regarding relationships. Over the next couple weeks, though, we're going to actually take a 180-degree different approach. Instead of searching the scriptures for, for direction and application, we're actually going to take a more, well, a, a big-picture view of a story, more of like a 30,000-foot approach to what's going on. Some of the writers uh, of the books of the Bible, if, if not many, most of them didn't simply write to chronicle teachings on various topics so much as they wrote with one big idea in mind. You see this if you, if you know anything about the, the four Gospels. If you're a church person or not, you've probably heard that there are these four stories of the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? The writers of those four books they weren't really just merely recording random things about Jesus. They actually had those stories there to point towards a bigger picture. Almost all of them had a very specific audience in mind and a very specific message that they wanted that specific audience to understand about Jesus. And so over these next weeks, we're going to take a big picture look at what we know, what you and I would describe or call the Gospel of Mark. What, what theologians believe is the first account that we have about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, after Jesus died, for about the next 30 or years or so, there was actually very little written about who Jesus was. The stories of his life, his death, and his resurrection, they were all passed around for several decades after, after Jesus had ascended. They were passed around orally. They became part of an oral tradition. And the reason that a lot of them weren't written down, right, is because all of those accounts about Jesus had so many eyewitnesses to them. Like, you'll see this this morning and over the coming weeks, like literally thousands of people were aware of who Jesus was, what he had said, and what, it, what he had done. And so, when there are that many eyewitnesses everywhere, right, the need to write down what had happened, what, what Jesus said and did, it wasn't necessary because the witnesses, because there were so many, could kind of keep the story trait, straight and true. If somebody would come up with some, some idea, well, and in Jesus, every time he got done speaking, he would ascend to heaven and move to a different place. Hundreds of people would go, no, he didn't, because everybody knew, right? You couldn't just make up stories. But about 30 years or so after Jesus' resurrection, the eyewitnesses were growing a, a, a bit older. Some of them were starting to, to die off, and, and legends about Jesus started to kind of pop up. 
And so it was around this time that, that the, the gospel writers decided it was time to put, because, you know, they, they, they saw their own, you know, future, that they weren't going to be around much longer. They decided they better write down specifically what it is they had seen to ensure that people would really understand who the real Jesus was, what he said, what he did. Importantly, so that people did not wind up just following a Jesus of their own invention. And to one extent or another, aren't we all guilty of that? Creating a, a Jesus who fits our ideal? If you've spent any time reading the Gospels, don't we approach them kind of with our own idea in mind of who Jesus is and what he said and, and what he did? And this is super dangerous, right? Because when we do things like that, what we're actually doing is when we bring our own kind of thought process to it and overlay them on Jesus, what we're actually doing is when we create Jesus in our own image, we deify ourselves. We, we begin, not purposely, but we get, begin kind of to worship ourselves, what we think. Walk with me through this, right? A Jesus of our own invention never challenges us. Never upsets us. He never corrects us. He never rebukes us, right? I had a, a, a challenging discussion with a friend one time about something Jesus taught, and uh, I kept showing them it, and they kept going, well, I just, I can't believe that, that, that he said that. I'm like, well, I know you can't believe it, but he did. Like, it's right here, and multiple eyewitnesses said he said that. Well, yeah, I understand it, but I, but I, I just can't believe it. Well, I understand you can't. <laughs> And the reason was because it went against what they believed, what they wanted to be true, right? Like, I like the Jesus that I like, not necessarily the Jesus as he's, as he's identified himself to be, right? I became um, so convinced of this several years ago, probably 15 years ago or so. I went to our elder board, and I challenged them. I said, uh, I want you guys to take the book of Mark which is the first of those four Gospels. It is a very short book. It's only 16 chapters long. You could read Mark in, I mean, if you're a, a decent reader, you could read it in less than an hour, right? And ask them to forget all of those preconceived notions of Jesus, all the things that they loved about him, right? Their favorite stories. I want you to put it all out of your mind. And I asked them to read Mark's work, right? Like they were literally hearing it for the first time, new and and fresh, without any preconceived notions. And while they did it, I said, I want you to enter this like you're a first century person, and this letter comes across, right? I want you to read it, and I want you to start going, well, who is this guy, and what did he want? That's it. Two questions, guys. Just read it, and keep asking yourself, in the one hour, who is this guy, and what did he want? And so they did. A couple of them read it several times, because after you read it once, you start going, hmm. And my favorite line was from one of the guys, and I would say, um, this was, again, 15 years ago, so, so uh, um, I'm not going to give details on everybody's examination of the book, but one of the guys that, that takes the scriptures incredibly seriously and probably knew them as good as anybody in the room, he, he looked around the room and in complete honesty, he looked at the rest of us and goes, I'm not even sure what I believe anymore. He wasn't having a faith crisis. His faith hadn't changed. But how he understood who Jesus was and what he had wanted had begun to morph based on the Jesus of Mark's retelling. So that's going to be my challenge to you as we, as we head towards Easter. I know, I know it's the, the Lenten season. A lot of people are giving things up. I'm going to ask you to add something. 
just some time in the next month or so, would you take the time, one hour, and sit aside and just grab this little book, 16 chapters, a cup of coffee, and we'll start reading, a little pen and paper. Who is this guy? What does he want? Who is this guy? What does he want? That's what we're going to do together in these coming weeks as we head towards Easter, answering those two big questions, looking at the big idea that Mark is trying to get across and why it mattered so much to Mark and it should to you and I. For Mark, again, each of these guys writing with an audience in mind and with a big picture point in mind, his focus is so clear, his account is so intense. You see it right at the start. We're going to look at how he starts, but compare the beginning of, of Mark's gospel. If you, if you know the, the, the stories of Luke or, or John or Matthew, Matthew, right? Matthew starts with a genealogy, and he goes all the way back in time to show that Jesus was related to all of the forefathers of the faith and how that bloodline passed to Jesus, right? Lots of prologue, Jesus' families, his roots. Luke why do we read Luke so much at Christmas time? Because Luke, again, lots of prologue about the birth of Jesus, about Mary and Joseph. And then John, talk about a big picture guy, right? John's gospel is actually very different from the others. His, his is not described as a synoptic gospel. John actually starts with the foundations and the creation of the world. That's how big a picture John is, right? Mark, none of any of that. He just gets right to the point immediately. Now, little background so you understand who's writing this. Mark, his, his full name was actually John Mark, was not one of Jesus' disciples. Matthew was, right? John was. Luke was merely a historian. Who is this John Mark? Well, John Mark was probably, theologians believe, only a teenager when Jesus actually was alive and ministering in and around Jerusalem, right? He probably was aware about how this itinerant preacher was turning the whole town on his ear and likely got caught up in it himself. Here's the interesting thing, though. In Mark's gospel, in many ways, it's not actually Mark's gospel. He wrote it, but Mark was a traveling companion of both the Apostle Paul and of Simon Peter. We know him as Peter, the most famous of Jesus' disciples. You know any Sunday school stories, right? This is the Peter who walks on water. This is the Peter who denies Jesus three times before the rooster crows. That Peter. John Mark is a traveling companion of his, and he spends, after Jesus' resurrection, the next 30 or so years traveling all over the place with Peter sharing the message of Jesus. They would go at great cost all over the place, much suffering to fulfill Jesus' last command to go and make disciples. Why is Mark writing and not Peter? Well, it's likely because Peter did not know how to write. Peter, we're going to talk about this a little bit next, uh, next time. Peter was, was a fisherman. It was likely that was his family trade. He was plying the family trade. He lived in a rural area in the first century. It's possible, maybe even likely, that Peter knew how to read, but fairly unlikely that he knew how to write. And the circumstances of his letter where this letter is authored, right, the, the circumstances demanded that these things be written down because time was short. This letter, likely the final communication of this quite famous disciple Peter, is written down by Mark while Peter is in prison in Rome awaiting execution by Nero. 
At the time, Peter's probably a man about my age, in and around his 30s, <laughs> somewhere in his 50s. He knows, and you know, the, the life expectancy was shorter then, as you can imagine. He knows that time is now short. I mean, I know that time is short. So Peter, you know, sitting, sitting in prison knows time is very short, right? And, and Peter um, and John Mark decide before it's too late, they better get these things down. Mark has heard these stories every day for 30 years. But for some reason, now is the time to set pen to paper. And so... He does this, that, just that. John Mark, with pen in his hand, listens as Peter, now in his final days, maybe even in chains, Peter begins, he begins with his point. This big, giant, grand, crazy idea. If, if the gospel, if, if his gospel was a puzzle, it was almost as if he starts with the cover of the box, which is a great way to, to, to look at this over the next coming weeks. My, my mother-in-law um, lives with us, and her greatest joy, it seems to me, is to do puzzles. I have no idea who gets any joy out of a puzzle. To me, it just seems highly frustrating. And I would say 50% of the time, when they get to the end, somehow there's always one piece missing. Every time. But it's interesting. When I watch her do the puzzle, um, she has the puzzle box, and it sits there in front of her. And she's always looking at the box, right? Because she knows what the puzzle is supposed to look like. And it helps her, therefore, because she knows what the complete picture is, it helps her to interpret the pieces along the way. I think that's what, what Mark wanted us to do, and I think that's, that's what Peter wanted us to do, and that's why they start with the box top. And so John Mark begins to write as Peter speaks. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the good news about Jesus. In the Greek in which it was written, right? It says, in the beginning of the euagelion about Jesus. In other places in the New Testament, this is translated the gospel instead of just the good news. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus. And so what Peter wants to get across, even with his opening words, is that he's not here to pass along opinion or advice or councils. This is no three-step plan. This is why this series is going to be different. For Peter, this isn't about a philosophy. This isn't about a life strategy. Peter, Peter is here to pass along to you, to all of the readers, news. Simply news. He perceived it as, as good, and once he passes it along, he knows it'll be up in the way. I don't want to rush ahead, but wait till you see how this gospel ends. It's really fascinating. But, but he, he passes along what he believes to be news, and he wants you to decide what you're going to do with it. This is actually a big deal to understand why he frames his final message this way. Because news, listen to me now, this is true, I think, news forces you to make a decision. See, opinions, right, opinions you can take in, you can acknowledge them, you could dismiss them. But news is different. I'm going to show my age here, but it... At 10 o'clock at night on a channel called Antenna TV, they, they replay every night, this is what I fall asleep to every night, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And so they do a great job of it, like they always play like whatever, whatever date it is, they kind of play an episode of, the, of that week or so and when Johnny Carson was on TV. And, and I, I don't know, it just reminds me of my childhood, it's very relaxing for me, so I watch this every night. But one thing that always catches me off guard when I'm watching it is, everybody's smoking. Right? Like, they're all smoking. Johnny's puffing away. A couple times they cut back to him. He doesn't realize he's on camera, right? 
And then uh, Robert Blake, you remember Beretta? He was on the other night, and he's just puffing away, right? Everybody's just smoking. It's, it's, it just kind of sticks out to me, right? In fact, I, I'm old enough to remember, do you remember when there were ash plays on, or ashtrays on airplanes? Like, that is a wild idea, right? Like, let's just smoke in this, this fuselage, right? Seems a little dangerous, right? Actually, I go down rabbit holes like this. Did you know it's actually mandated that if a plane is manufactured, even today, it's still, it is mandated by the FAA that they have ashtrays in them? If you go to the bathroom in a plane, you'll see there's always an ashtray in there. Um, and I guess it's because somebody can't control themselves and they at least want to have a place for them to put this cigarette out, right? Well, sometime, and you all know this, I'm telling you, you don't know, sometime in the 60s, you know, medical evidence began to pile up right into the 70s that smoking wasn't good for your health. The news became, you know, repeated. And so debate began to play out in the public square about this news. For example, did you know that 20,679 doctors say that luckies are less irritating? In fact, Lucky's, according to the ad with this picture, and this, this doctor was always on all these smoking ads. It was kind of funny. I don't know who he was, but um, the, these, uh, these Lucky's will actually protect you from a cough. Who knew? Now, you don't trust doctors. Who can blame you, right? Right? Who could you trust? How about Santa Claus? <laughs> Everybody trusts Santa Claus. And Santa's here to tell you that Paul Malls protect against that inconvenient throat cancer, I mean uh, that inconvenient throat scratch, right? There was news, smoking is not good for you, it causes cancer. But you have to decide if you believe the news, and, and if you did, what were you going to do about the news? See, friends, news, it forces a decision, doesn't it? My mother, um, my mother grew up in this era, and uh, my mother smoked for many, many years. And my mother right now, watching online, mom, good morning, I love you. My mom has COPD. And, uh, you know, to her credit, she's like, look, I knew what I was doing when I was smoking these cigarettes. I, you know, I'm not looking to sue the tobacco company. I did what I wanted to do, even though I made a decision in light of the news, and my life now reflects the decision I made. Do you see that? When I was a young kid growing up, we had one of these in the closet in my room. I don't know why my parents stored this in the closet in my room, but it's very enticing for a young boy. When you're 10 years old, how cool is a sun lamp, right? Tan at home, nobody kicking sand in my face at the beach, I'm in. Now, why did everybody have one of these in the 70s? Well, because it said so right here in the ad, right? You will look better and more attractive all winter long. And I mean, I'm like five foot six, 125 pounds, right? I'm in eighth grade. My perm hadn't done the trick. So I thought, you know, this is really going to drive the chicks crazy. I'm going to get that deep, dark tan that I deserve. But then the news broke, and it forced the decision. Sun tanning causes skin cancer, and a particularly cruel one called melanoma, which will kill you. And so, informed of the decisions, informed of the news, you have a decision to make. You could stay pasty white, or you could live out your life somewhat like this woman when you get a little bit older. And do we have that one, Maggie? Kind of look like a leather saddlebag. But the news is there. You have a decision to make. It's your call. You just got to make a decision. 
And right there with his opening words, you got to think about Peter. Like he's been thinking 30 years about how he's going to open this story. Right there with his opening words, Peter sets Christianity apart from every other religion known to man, including no religion at all. Because the essence of every other religion is advice. Christianity, think about this, is different. Christianity is news. Other religions say, well, this is what you have to do in order to connect to God. This is how you have to live in order to, to earn your way to God. But the gospel says, no, no, this is what's been done in history. It's, it's news. This is how Jesus lived, and he died, and, and he earned the way to God for you. Christianity is completely different. It is, according to Peter, joyful news, good news. It's, it's not a plan. It's not principles. There are no steps. In fact, in fact, here's what's really fascinating. There's no burden placed on you at all. Simply news. You have to decide what you're going to do with it. And your life will reflect your decision of what you've decided to do. But what's the news about? He goes on. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. In other translations, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Now, most of you know this. Some of you, you don't. And, and I mean, how, how would you necessarily? Christ is not the last name of Jesus, right? His name wasn't Jesus Christ. He was often called Jesus of Nazareth because in those days, that was one of the ways you would be described by your job or by your hometown, right? The term Christ... Christos in the Greek is actually just a title somebody might have, or for example, an office. We do the exact same thing in our culture when we call somebody Dr. Jones, right, or, or Mrs. Smith. This was Jesus the Christ. The word Messiah and Christ are, are often inter interchangeable. They both mean the anointed one. In Hebrew, the word was often used as a royal title in reference to the practice of a, anointing a new king with oil, just as David was anointed the king of Israel by Samuel. King Saul was described in, in the Old Testament as the anointed one. And so, friends, every time you have said Jesus Christ, and there's probably been some times when you should not have said it, perhaps involving like a hammer in your thumb, Every time you have said it, you have made the exact same discovery that Mark is trying to get across to you here. And it's a big one. It's very big news. It's this. Jesus, here's Mark's point. Jesus is the anointed king. See, when, when we just worshiped and we sang of Jesus Christ, you are singing that Jesus is the anointed king. If you've ever asked somebody to consider following Jesus Christ, do you know what you're asking them to do? You're asking them to make and to follow Jesus as their king. And, and, and this shouldn't be surprising to us. I mean, I think it is because we get a little confused sometimes. But, but literally, if you went back into the Old Testament prophecies about who Jesus would be, he's always referenced as a coming king. Luke, right, he's doing all of this work to write down all of these stories about Jesus, to very detailed so that stories would be passed down accurately. He tells the story of when the angel Gabriel came to visit Mary. Do you remember what Gabriel said to Mary about her son? You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, who was a king, and he will reign, which is what kings do, over Jacob's descendants forever. And what do all kings have? Kingdoms. His kingdom will never end. And Peter's choice in sentence one to call Jesus 
the Christ, to call him the king. You read it and you go, well, big deal. I'm telling you, guys, when he wrote this, it was mind-blowing, earth-shattering to everybody that read this letter. And it should be for us today, right? I mean, we've heard it a thousand times, so when we read it, we don't flinch. But what Peter is saying is the guy I knew, the guy I walked with, the guy I ate with, this man I saw on his best days, this man I saw on his worst days, I saw him, I saw him healthy and sick. I saw him with stomach viruses. I, 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 I saw him tired and cranky. The man who I saw laugh and cry, angry, sad. That guy I joked with, I walked with, I talked with. That guy was Jesus the king. He is the divine son of God. That's an insane sentence, right? He's the son of God. Now, to a Gentile audience, right, like the audience in Rome, it wasn't just insane. It was crazy. It was dangerous. I mean, Peter's on the verge. He's, he's on the verge of execution in Rome. And, and this message isn't going to help his cause. And, and I'll show you why. Just as simply as I can state it. You know what kings don't, you know what kings don't like? Other kings. They're very threatening. In fact, this is super interesting. I found this this week. I was doing my research on, on this topic, right? This is a picture of the calendar of inscription of Priam. It was discovered in Western Turkey. Written in 9 BC, okay? Around the same time, right? It comments on the birth of Caesar. And check out the wording. Here's, here's what the words say there. This is so interesting. It seemed good to the Greeks of Asia in the opinion of the high priest Apollonius of Menophilus Azanitis. Quote, since providence, you know, kind of karma, since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, Caesar Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit mankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. He would bring peace. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And listen to this. Since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news, the euangelion for the world, that came by reason of him. Peter's in Rome, and in Rome, the Caesars are saviors. The Caesars are sons of God. The Caesars are the king of the world. And Mark takes their language, almost word for word, as he awaits execution under Nero. I mean, can you imagine? He's, he says this. He comes up with it. He's been thinking about it for 30 years. And, and, and you got John Mark sitting there, and he's a younger man, so he's thinking, well, you know, I still got some good years ahead of me. What would you like me to write? And he, he goes, here, write this. Can you imagine John Mark going, whoa. <laughs> Don't you think maybe we should just tread a little lighter here? I mean, this might be a little bit hard to get out of here, right? You want me to write down that Jesus is the king, not Caesar, not Augustus, not Nero, that Jesus is the king, the son of God? I mean, it's amazing, if you think about it, it's amazing this letter made it out of Nero's Rome, right? It's amazing. But it wasn't just to a Gentile audience that the message was uncomfortable. 
In fact, to the religious audience of the day, it was borderline heretical. Mark goes on. He, he, he says, as it's written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so Mark immediately, like sentence two or three, goes back to Old Testament prophets, Malachi, and then to Isaiah for these two passages. One of the latter one is from Isaiah chapter 40. If you go to Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah writes that someday the Lord himself will come to Jerusalem and show the nations his glory, and a messenger will call out and show the way before him. And then what does Mark do in the very next verse? He identifies that messenger as John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. This is where I'm getting that number. Thousands were aware of these stories. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the River Jordan. Don't you understand what Mark is doing is, is he identifies that John the Baptist is the voice and the messenger preparing the way. He's identifying that Jesus is the Lord. In Hebrew, the word translated the Lord is that word we use in a song here sometimes, Yahweh. Some of you know where that comes from. It's, it's the personal name of God. Moses wanted to know who he was, and God says, I'll tell you who I am. I am Yahweh, it was revealed to Moses in, a bird, in the burning bush. It is to this day, a name so holy that you do not speak it, that you do not write it. And Peter is saying, Mark is writing this down. Mark is going, you got to be kidding me. You want, you want me to write that? He's saying that Jesus is this Yahweh. The name that we can't even write. The name that we can't even speak. I had dinner with him. Yeah, the ideal, uh, it became real. The immortal became mortal. The unapproachable was someone I hugged. And then he just keeps going deeper, pushing the envelope a little bit more into the identity of God. He says that Jesus comes from Nazareth down to the River Jordan where John baptized him. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he writes down that he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, if you've, if you've heard that before, you've read that before, it's familiar, but it has such a deeper meaning that you and I, we, we go by, we don't pick it up. Tim Keller in his book, Jesus the King, notes, listen to this. For the Spirit of God to be pictured as a dove isn't particularly striking to us. But when Mark was writing, it was very rare. In the sacred writings of Judaism, there's only one place where the Spirit of God is likened to a dove, and that's in the Targums, the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures that the Jews of Mark's time read. In the creation account, the only time, the book of Genesis chapter 1, says the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. The Hebrew verb there meant fluttered. The spirit fluttered over the face of the water. And so to capture this vivid image, the rabbis translated the passage for the Targums like this, quote, and the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove, and God spoke, let there be light. There were, at creation, three parties active in the creation of the world. God, God's Holy Spirit, and God's Word, through which the creation of the world takes place. 
The same three parties are present at Jesus' baptism. The Father who is the voice, the Son who is the word, and the Spirit fluttering over the waters like a dove. What Mark is saying to his Jewish audience, those that understood these words, right, he is pointing deliberately back to creation, to the very beginning of all time. Just as the original creation of the world was a project of the triune God, Mark says, so the redemption that has now come, the rescue and the renewal of all things, it too is the same thing. This is now the beginning of everything new. The king has arrived. Everything is about to begin again. You can read this straight through. He's trying. It's not even like coded. We just, we just don't think about it this way. But to his audience, they're going, I can't believe he's saying this. I can't believe he's saying this. He goes on. The similarities to creation are, are everywhere. Next verse. At once, as soon as Jesus comes out of the water, there's the voice, the spirit, right? At once, the spirit sent him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attempted to him. In Genesis, right, what happens at creation? The spirit moves over the face of the waters. God speaks the world into being. Humanity is created. History is launched. What is the very next thing that happens? Satan tempts human beings, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. And here is Mark saying the same thing. The spirit, the water, God speaks. A new humanity. History is altered. And immediately the pattern continues with Jesus being sent out and tempted in the wilderness. It's all beginning again, don't you see? What Peter's saying, what Mark is writing down is even bigger news than you might have possibly understood. What he's conveying is that Jesus, this king, has come to restart and renew everything. He is, he overcame the temptations in the desert. This new Adam, this new king is starting everything over and he's making all things new. Because where there's a new king, there's a new kingdom. But to his first century audience, and, and maybe to this audience, maybe to us. Peter knows that there seems to be a lot of the old kingdom still around. And, for how, and perhaps purposely, he writes about the wild animals and the angels attending to Jesus. At, at that time, Mark is writing his gospel, Christians are being thrown in the Colosseum to the wild animals by Nero. Not surprisingly, many surviving Christians were, were tempted to begin to doubt their beliefs, were, were tempted to hedge their commitment to God. Well, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know. But here they see Jesus, like Adam, experience a very, experiencing a very real threat and a very real temptation, having to contend with these things, this world too. The dawn of this new day means the dawn of a new kingdom, which has come in part now, not fully, not yet, but it has come in part now. And that is why so often, we, we, because it's not here fully, we experience that same disconnect. In fact, it's not just us. He, he goes on, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Again, what is Jesus doing? He's proclaiming news. He's not giving you a plan right? This isn't the Roman's road. He's not drawing any bridges over like, you know, things. He's like, I'm here to tell you good news. You decide what you're going to do with it. You will live with the implications of your choice. Your life will reflect the choice you made. And what is the good news? Super interesting, right? 
I, I hope this will radically change the way you think about the message. Jesus shows up, and he goes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. That's what this means. Now, if I were to ask you when you came in this morning, what is the gospel? Most of you would respond the way I, I would likely respond. Well, what's the message of the gospel? Well, the message of the gospel is that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and that Jesus died for my sins so that I can be forgiven. And when I die, now I get to go to heaven. And in the meantime, I should be thankful, and I should try to be a good Christian man. right? I should try to behave like a Christian. But think with me through this, right? Jesus shows up in Galilee proclaiming the gospel. Jesus isn't dead. He hasn't died for anybody. So what's he telling them? What's the good news? Because he's alive and well. Well, he goes on. Here it is. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. That was the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the good news that he said, you need to decide about. And its implications will be reflected in how you live your life. The kingdom of God has begun. It's not something you have to wait to die to be invited into or participate in. The time has come. The time is now, right where you are, where you live, in your home. You don't have to quit your job. Right there with your kids, your spouse, the time is now. The kingdom of God has come near. Why? Because where the king goes, the kingdom goes. Today, in this room, right now, remember this king said if two or, two or three gather in my name, there I am with them? Do you know what this is right here? It's the kingdom of God. Right here. Right in this room. Can you feel it? I know some of you do. Every time we do a, 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 a newcomer's lunch, almost the thing that gets repeated more than any other thing, you can ask folks that go, is something about when I come here, I just feel different. I feel good. The kingdom of God. Which leads me to conclude with two th thoughts, really. First, Mark will spend the rest of his gospel writing down what Peter said to support this audacious claim that Jesus is the king of the world that he's present and close, and that he wants us to change our mind about who the king of our life is and believe, right? In fact, let me just jump back. What did, what did he want us to do? What is the response to news? I've already shared it with you, but Jesus just, just says it again. What do you do with news about a new king and a kingdom? Here's what Jesus said. Repent and believe. Repent and believe the good news. Change your mind. Change your direction. Why? Because you believe the good news. Stop smoking right? Here's the news. You decide what you're going to do with the news. It, you, you can ignore it, and your life will be a reflection of the, the choice you made. Stop tanning. You can ignore it. You're going to look like a handbag, right? <laughs> and, and so Jesus is going, here's the news. Well, what should I do? Well, if I was you, I would change the way you think, right? And, and, and I would, I would, I would, I would go in a different direction. I'd repent and believe. Mark's going to spend the rest of his gospel trying to prove Jesus is the king. In fact, what Peter will spend the rest of the letter doing is answering a question that John the Baptist winds up asking. You and I have asked it a million times, too. Remember, we're going to be asking who is this guy and what he wants. Peter just quickly pushes past what happened to John. Anybody remember? He just quickly, just a quick touch on what happened to John. Anybody remember what Peter said happened to John? 
He just said that after John had been arrested, that was it, right? After John had been arrested. The other gospel writers share much more about John's future. He was arrested by Herod Onipas, who ruled Galilee on Rome's behalf. And John then, like Peter now, finds himself in chains, awaiting execution. And while in prison, like Peter now, John then begins to face his own wilderness, his own, his own demons, his own temptations, his own doubts, and as Peter put it, the wild animals. And yet reports keep getting back to John about what Jesus, this new king, is doing all over the new kingdom. The new kingdom is breaking out everywhere. Isn't it amazing? And John's going, not really. Not really. I don't see it. Matthew writes it this way. He says, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one to come, or should, should we expect somebody else? Guys, Peter will spend the next 15 chapters of this book trying to answer that very question, because the truth is that while the kingdom has come, it has come in part. It is not yet here in whole. And as Jesus promised, in this life, you will have problems. And John was having problems. Doubts were creeping in. But what John knew was the right question to ask. Guys, we ask the wrong question all the time, and he asked the right one. It was not, can Jesus help me? It was not, will Jesus save me? It was not, how do I pray and get him to do what I want him to do? How do, how do I get out of here? John never asked Jesus to come get him out, and he knew he could have. Let me repeat that. Think about your own life. Think about the prison you find yourself in this morning. John never asked to get out of the prison. He asked a simple question. Are you the one? Because when you become convinced of that, everything else doesn't matter. Everything changes. Which brings me to point two. Because life is hard. Stuff happens, doesn't it? But if he is the one, if he is the king, if the king has come and the kingdom is here, I mean, truthfully, doesn't it change everything? The king is close. If the king loves me enough to leave his throne and come to me, I mean, again, no other religion. There is no other religion that makes claims like this. Every other one is not news. It's advice. Our king comes with news. I've come for you. I know every hair on the top of your head. I've counted every one of them. I knew you before you were formed. I mean, doesn't that change how, I don't know, how you view yourself? I would have to, right? Doesn't that change how you view others? Would it not have to change how you see your circumstances? What you should value? How you should think? What you might be willing to, for example, endure? I mean, think of it, right? This news has these, these huge implications, and it won't always be easy or comfortable. You know why? Because no new kings and kingdoms they never come easy. They are always threatening to old kings and old kingdoms. And let's be honest. The thing you and I need to repent about the most is that we kind of like being king, don't we? I, I like my own kingdom. But if you hear the news and you believe the news that the king has come, that he's near, and the kingdom is now and forever, what couldn't change for you? What is not possible for you if this is true? If you would repent, right, of the Jesus of your own making 
and you would embrace the Jesus that Peter knew, what is still possible for you? What do you do with good news? You dismiss it, or you repent and believe. But it's your choice, and your life will reflect the outcome. I will tell you, though, Peter was so sure of the answer to John's question, are you the one, are you the one? That sometime, not too long after this letter was written, Peter wound up facing the wild animals he wrote about himself. Not in the Colosseum like the other Christians. Maybe for Nero that would have not been public enough to put down the threats of a new king and a new kingdom. So instead, to put an end to this uprising, he decided to have Peter crucified, to, to die in the same manner of Jesus. As legend has it, though, Peter, knowing the way that his king died, decided he was unworthy to die like Jesus, and instead of being crucified like Jesus, he chose to be crucified upside down. Friends, let me ask you a question. As we get ready to celebrate Easter, how sure would you have to be to choose to be crucified upside down? How sure would you have to be? This is the same guy that years earlier ran away from a schoolgirl that accused him of being with Jesus. How sure would you have to be? How sure would you have to become to write this letter in Nero's prison, in Nero's Rome? How sure would you have to be to die this death? Peter was that sure. And as you will see in the coming weeks, the big picture of what he's writing is he wants you to be that sure because he knows what it means for your life. Because if you are, then there is good news for you. There is a new king and a new kingdom, and things are never, ever going to be the same again. They can't. Let's stand and sing and celebrate.